Executive Director of the Massachusetts Coast Coast, welcoming you to the No Flood Newscast, the official podcast of the Massachusetts Coast Coalition, with host myself, Joe Rossi, and co-host and vice chair of the Massachusetts Coast Coalition, Tim Williams. And we are back with another episode of the No Flood Newscast. And you know, Tim, uh, one of the things that we obviously struggle with up here in New England, and it's really a national issue, is this idea of building mitigation. And, and not just mitigation in terms of, you know, oh, you know, do these small things and, and help buildings, you know, be more resilient, but really the true home elevation um, right. moving of buildings. I mean, you know, we drive through our, our local communities up here in New England, and I mean, what do we see? Buildings sitting on the ground in front of seawalls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we certainly do. And so I want to, our, our guest today is the, I would call him the national mitigation leader when it comes to home elevations um, <clears throat> and advocacy around funding these types of projects. We have Rod Scott with us today. Um, and he is the, one of the co-founders um, of the Flood Mitigation Industry Association. Um, and Rod, it's great to have you with us here today. Hey, Joe. Thanks. And uh, happy to be here with you and Tim. So, you know, one of the things that we want to start off with, like we do with many of our guests, because your story about who you are and where you're from actually leads us right into today's conversation. Um, and that is um, your background um, and where you're from, which I think is a really cool story. Because where, you, like I said, where you're from will lead us into all of today's conversation. So tell us a little bit about you and your background. Sure, uh, happy to. Uh, I live in uh, coastal Louisiana in a historic non-levied community on the North shore of Lake Pontchartrain across from uh, New Orleans. Uh, so we have a five foot seawall. New Orleans has a 30 foot levee. Um, when it floods, the water has to go somewhere. And she comes out of the banks on the North Shore over the seawalls. Um, it is a historic little community, a lot of historic buildings, big historic district. And um, they've been adapting there since uh, 1900. The big storm in 1900 shredded what was there and they started rebuilding about five feet off the ground. Um, so they, they understood their environment. And then we got kind of dumb and got towards World War II and started putting everything slab on grade and just cut our feet off in spite of our face. Uh, I come from 30 years background in general contracting, <clears throat> specializing in flood and fire restoration after disaster and then um, uh, a lot of insurance work and then historic buildings uh, are my passion. And so I've done a lot of historic building work uh, as a contractor, as a volunteer writing grants, as consulting with the National Park Service on their new flood adaptation guidelines. And uh, if you think about it, all the historic buildings are at least 50 years old. So that means they predate the NFIP and they are extremely vulnerable because they were never built to any kind of standard uh, for minimum elevation requirements. And so um, uh, basically I got involved after 30 years of general contracting, came down here after Katrina 
when they had a couple of billion dollars on the ground of HUD money to elevate buildings called the Road Home Program, the first mass elevation program post-disaster in the country, and um, uh, ended up developing a home elevation business with this other guy that I came down here with out of the Midwest. And we had 10 machines elevating two machine, two houses a day, six days a week in the heyday of it. Uh, so 20, 30 houses a week were going up with our company. And there was 30, 40 other companies. So here in Louisiana, we've elevated about 36,000 homes since Katrina. Uh, pretty amazing number. We lead the nation far and away. Wow. Uh, we're an example for other states. Reduced our damages by the tens, if not hundreds of millions in subsequent events. And, um, and so uh, as I got involved more and more with it, I, I started realizing that nobody's educating the property owners or the contractors. It's not government's job. It really falls to the private industry. So I developed this thing called Elevation 101 that we deployed after uh, Tropical Storm Lee in upstate New York, and then redeployed it after Sandy as uh, Elevation 101. Uh, spent about 16 months and 20 some thousand miles on the Jersey and New York shoreline doing public outreach meetings and gymnasiums and church basements and council chambers uh, with the survivors and the local government folks and trying to explain to them how this process works and that it does work and you don't have to be on the ground anymore and there's a lot of money coming and you need to get ready for it. And then came back here, uh, actually I won the 2014 National Flood Proofing Award for that program um, and uh, from ASFPM, the, society, uh, the floodplain managers group. And then uh, really opened up my consulting work from there. I didn't want to go back into the heyday of <laughs> 10 machines elevating 20 buildings a, a week. That was a, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of moving parts there. So we, um, I've consulted on a lot of projects, doing some uh, mitigation assessments. And uh, that's really where I see my role now is, is defining this uh, assessment of what it's going to cost, the budget numbers for these buildings, because you're either going to have to go into grants or financing uh, with the new Storm Act, with the revolving loan program, to uh, to get these projects done. As I tell everyone, uh, this is not inexpensive, and it's not easy, but the options are very, very ugly. And so um, we're in an era of climate change. It's changed for the history of the earth. The climate has changed. You know, I'm going to bring in all the naysayers too. Um, and with that change comes, uh, with the warming of the climate comes increasing frequency and intensity of rain events and storms. And so my little community on the North shore of Lake Pontchartrain has had 15, 17 floods in 15 years since Katrina. We have a five foot seawall and it comes over that seawall regularly once a year. Last year with four hurricanes hitting the coast, luckily we didn't take one of them dead on but they, uh, they all sloshed over that seawall and all of our historic pre-flood map buildings on the lakefront got flooded four times last year. And then we took Ida uh, pretty close to the center this year, eight and a half foot surge again. Um, but let me give you some amazing numbers. Our community has been involved with elevating because after Katrina, we had all of these 50% damaged historic buildings. And, um, the planning department said, you're not rebuilding until you agree to elevate as part of that rebuilding. We're not gonna violate that, that 
that ordinance, which so many communities look the other way and they try and get them to 49%. And, you know, I was a contractor for 30 years. The, the old guys taught me to go look at the tax records first thing and figure out what that building was worth and come in at 49%. You can keep rebuilding them for the rest of your life. And that's what we've done. And it's wrong and it's upside down and we can't do it anymore. We owe ourselves $20 billion in the flood program and the insurance program. It was 40 and we get forgave for 20, but our kids are gonna be paying us off with interest to ourselves into the future. And, and we estimate as an industry that there's three or 4 million of these pre-firm buildings left in the flood zones. A lot of them have been replaced uh, with newer construction. And you just, on the drive that you did with my wife and I that day, uh, thanks for that tour. It was really great when we came down to visit. Uh, really gave me a, I love to get on the ground and kick the tires, you know. So, um, and boy, that lobster sandwich was something else, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was Rod's uh, uh, pinnacle of visiting New England this past summer. Yeah, it wasn't Joe. It was the lobster sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, but we had a great day and got a lot of insight to your area. And, and you're chock full of these older historic buildings sitting yeah. in flood zones. They're, they're increasingly vulnerable to flooding. And now we're adjusting the rates on this insurance. Remember for 40, 50 years, they only had to pay 500 bucks a year because they were built before a flood map and they weren't compliant. And everybody said, well, you just get a subsidized rate. And that worked until now with all of these increases in storms since the 90s. I mean, you just look at the graphs on how many storms just since 1990. We're in a new era. It's, it's already here. And, uh, and so we're going to increase the insurance on these old buildings, the NFIP insurance rates, until they are actual risk uh, rated. And, and that's going to be devastating to a lot of families, especially low and moderate income families who are the backbone of our economies, you know, the, the working force uh, in our economy. And, and they have to be in that area because they work in that area and their house is in that area. Uh, so why do they have to stay on the ground and, and flood? Uh, imagine a community that floods and you don't have any flooded houses. Can you imagine that? That's where my town is. So I'm gonna tell you a little story about flood mitigation and how it really works. In my community, after Katrina, we had 750 NFIP claims for $25 million wow. and a bunch of houses that disappeared mm. right off the lakefront. In Isaac, in 2012, we only had 250 buildings with flood claims and 7 million in damages. So that's a $19 million savings every time the water is eight foot, nine foot high. And Two, three weeks ago, we had Ida. It was brutal. I don't know if you've seen the video from the, from the coast, but uh, yeah. whole communities are going to struggle to come back. There's yeah. one parish that all the schools have damaged. And, I mean, it's, wow. it's, it's very low income. It's fishing communities. And I, I, I think we're going to have some out migration. Yeah. Wasn't um, um, Grand Isle the, the community that really got pummeled? 100% damaged. 100%. Wow. No water, no gas. Uh, not letting people stay on the island overnight at this point. They were trying to, but, uh, you know, and they're part of that. We're going to build back better and we're going to build back. And I mean, there's just nothing but piling sitting there where the older buildings were. They're just, they're just gone, vaporized. Wow. And so, and the, some of the newer ones, you know, had less, less damage 
unfortunately, Louisiana doesn't have the wind codes that uh, for roofing that uh, Florida does. And we need to change that here because uh, a lot of the elevated buildings that I talked about were down in that area and they've got roof damage. They were mm. fined for flooding, but they got rainwater inside because the roofs opened up. So we well, have you to- mentioned the pilings that are just standing by themselves. Is that with wind codes, was that more of like the, the anchors or the, you know, the, the steel that anchors the home to the pilings? Are they rotted out or is that just- well, these would have been older structures on yeah. wood pilings, probably five, eight feet off the ground. And the whole structure's gone. So right. um, the, the- It's just uh, the age of the building that's that and not elevated, probably high enough at the and time. And not on a V-zone foundation. Yeah. Either. Yeah. I mean, what we see up here in some of the some of the older homes that are on pilings is the, the bolts are all rusted out because no one's changed them to stainless steel. And so- you may have a house that's on pilings, but it's no good when a storm comes through. We don't we don't like wood pilings. We don't like that assembly yeah. at all. We do the yeah. uh, the grade beam concrete foundation with rebar, uh, helical piles underneath if you need to have deep piles, right. and then um, uh, come up with the piers, sixteen by sixteen block with uh, rebar and mortar grout filled. They're like a precast right. or precast the columns. Yep. And, uh, and we do all open foundations. My town doesn't have closed foundations in it. We mm -hmm. like the airflow underneath. You know, sure. if you need a, a warm floor in the winter, you just insulate underneath. <laughs> and you're supposed to insulate underneath if you're parking underneath anyway for fire. So, uh, and then we use that new DENS board, that new fiberglass DENS rock that doesn't absorb all that uh, salt air moisture that you get at the coastline. So, um, uh, and then you build your new foundations out of that new Owens Corning fiberglass re-rod instead of the steel rebar because yeah. then you don't have any rust anywhere right. even in the footings so we're pretty excited about those new composite rebar products coming out uh, so so our community in ida so remember isaac was we went from 750 claims to 250 claims in 2012 from 2005 and in 2021 we just declared 53 structures damaged we don't have the nfip claims yet but uh, of course, they are all our critical commercial and, re and restaurant buildings down near the lake mm -hmm. that everybody loves to go to. Right. Can't lose those buildings. A lot of employment in there that's not working right now uh, after a year of COVID with no working. So um, uh, the community's worried, but, um, uh, you know, there'll be HMGP money. They're all SRLs. So they all were responsible property owners and had flood insurance over the years, but they're going up at 25% a year. And um, our, one of them that's at uh, 10 feet below BFE in the VE zone, the voodoo zone, as I get to call it, because <laughs> New Orleans is, is the voodoo zone, though. It's three foot waves above the surge with stuff in it. Uh, house beaters, we call them. And, uh, and uh, they, they went 10 years ago, uh, they were at 2,500 a year insurance. This year, they went to 25,000. He said, oh, my God, what's going on? The guy said, well, you got five more years of increases as they remove those subsidies on your severe repetitive loss commercial building, and you'll be at 47500 in five more years. Uh, mm -hmm. And after this flood, the restaurant owner just broke his lease and walked away. So now the building owner is stuck with the building, flood insurance policy, but no tenant and not mitigated. And now he wants to get a grant to elevate. Sure. And so good sign up because you've waited way too long and denied everything. And uh, there were some family issues there and 
denial of climate change and don't change my historic building and all so, these Ron, other you mentioned issues. the um, Storm Act and you know for our listeners that you know I think a lot of our listeners and stakeholders want to do you know elevations or, or look at you know mitigating their home but financing has been the biggest struggle talk a little bit about this Storm Act and this revolving loan because I think you know, we've tried to come up with ideas on a state level, but this seems like it's more of a federal, you know, program. So could you touch on that for us? Yeah, uh, let me give you just a touch of history for it and how it got here. Uh, five or six years, we've been working as an industry. We didn't get our industry association, our nonprofit up and running till about a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, and the reason we did it was because of an event that happened. But uh, we've been talking to Congress for half a dozen years, trying to convince them that we've got to have some other way other than these grants, which are very limited, the FEMA grants, and now half of these grants are going to drainage projects, which doesn't get one building compliant. They just take it a little bit of flooding out so that the mayor's office doesn't hear about it every day when it floods, but doesn't get the buildings compliant. So um, we finally, in 2019, the Climate Crisis Committee tackled the process as part of their 500 page manifesto on how we're gonna deal with climate change. Part of that was a revolving loan for mitigation. Only they co-opted our idea and actually uh, said it needed to be a multi-hazard. So wind, flood, fire, and earthquake, all major hazards for our buildings. And why is this important? Well, remember, buildings pay for everything. Buildings. 50 cents out of every tax dollar goes to a school and the rest of it is spread out over roads and police and fire and sewer and drainage and all this other stuff. You can't pay for it if your buildings don't have value. And what's happening now is the increase in the flood insurance rates. At some point, there's going to be a tip and it's going to impact these property values. My town, now that it's over 80% elevated, you can't sell the house on the ground. It's over unless you give up the cost of that project. The buyers have all figured it out. Uh, so there are buyers that going in and lowballing these families that have been around forever and paid off their properties and basically taken a couple hundred thousand off the top of the sale, which isn't bad because they're all lakefront and very valuable properties and they've all made money as families over the years. But all the old families are getting out away from the water now. And yeah. the new, younger people are coming in and redoing these houses, elevating them, adding some square footage. So. It's a huge issue. And the more inventory of these buildings that you have, the more at risk your revenues are. And that's what we've been trying to explain to people is don't go in and do this, all this drainage stuff first because your insurance rates are going up and at some point it's gonna boom, hit that value thing. And then you're not gonna have money coming in for schools and, and fixing the roads and the drainage and stuff. So fix the assets first. Um, It'll pay off in the long run and you'll get to stay uh, much longer at the, at the coast. Um, you know, low lying areas of three and four feet, they're gonna, my kids are gonna have to make some decisions. Uh, I'm 64, I'm just gonna strengthen as many of them as I can. So we think that there's three or 4 million of them of the flood buildings that are not compliant in the flood zones. Wind is a whole nother thing, earthquakes a whole nother thing. And so this, this, Manifesto came out, said you gotta have a revolving loan for multiple hazards. And then out of the blue, well, actually we had it included in the NFIP reauthorization, but as you all know, uh, it's been awful hard for Congress to do their job 
<laughs> it's been stalled out so many times. Yeah, yep. most this likely again. revolving loan is actually in the NFIP renewal, yeah. reauthorization. And it stalled out. And we thought, well, we're dead in the water. We're going to have to wait till after the election and start all over again with Congress and the president. Well, in the dark of night, in the midnight hour of the last Congress, this storm act comes rolling through, uh, pioneered by some Mississippi River towns, uh, coalition of Mississippi River towns. And it was really aimed more at infrastructure, but it did include buildings in the, in the language. And so what happened was after the, before this legislation happened in, in December of 2020, um, in May of 2019, I was invited to a closed meeting at the Treasury building with all the banks. And there was 30 plus banks around the table, Fannie and Freddie, who own 80% of our mortgages for our homes now, FHA, uh, insurance, real estate was there, associations. And basically they said, you know, Mr. Scott, we agree that there's three or four million buildings. We think they're worth about $1.5 trillion of asset value. And we're okay with you saying that it's 600 billion to retrofit everything. Now that's elevation and dry flood proofing of non-residential buildings. So our commercial buildings can be dry flood proof to a certain point. Uh, if they're individual buildings, you might as well just elevate them and put elevators in and, and do the seafood place up above the water. Like our new buildings are, right? <laughs> like our new buildings are. And so, uh, basically, I said, look, financing is the only problem. Our government grants are doing 75 buildings a year elevation, and we have three or four million. It's going to be 10,000 years. It's not working. It's not going to work. And half of the money has been siphoned off now for drainage projects instead of fixing these buildings. And so, you know, I said, get us a loan program, and we'll go to town. Our industry will grow by 2,000%. We'll hire thousands of tradespeople and train and, and fix all these assets, all these buildings. And, um, and so basically the banks turned to the treasury and said, you get a revolving loan passed through Congress and set up, our banks are willing to loan the country several hundred billion dollars to fix this problem as part of this revolving loan. And so now we're sitting here Congress has appropriated $500 million to get the program started over a series of three or four years, 100 million a year, um, above the authorized level. And it appears that the, um, not the infrastructure bill, but that other bill with all the social programs has added another 500 million. So we could be mm -hmm. at a billion dollars each of the next, uh, well, a billion dollars total divided out the next three or four years. And that is the seed money to get the program going because FEMA then has to write rules. It's a new program. Yeah. And we've never had a loan program before. We've had grant programs forever, uh, but never a loan program. And so it, it will be available for communities to use as a match for their Corps of Engineers projects or a, a seawall improvements or drainage improvements, but it also can be used to loan the project costs to the property owners and do it like a PACE program. We'll attach it to the taxes. It's outside the mortgage envelope. See, the banks can't loan us more than 80% of the property value. Right. And if you're in a middle income property in a flood zone, got a mortgage, there's no way you can get financing for this. So this will attach to the property taxes. You can buy and sell the property with this attached to it as long as the new owner 
agrees to assume the note. And 20 years, low interest, and we fixed three or four million buildings. How many there in Marshfield and all those that I saw that day could actually access this with their property values, get it done. They can hand those buildings off to their kids. Their kids can finish paying it off and they can enjoy many, many more summers yeah. at the coast there. That was the big thing. Was so the that's our goal is this new revolving loan. It's, it's revolutionary, never been done before, but we also got to be very careful because I've already heard the rumblings from the drainage and contractors who have a lot of power locally in their communities, the engineering community and, the, and these drainage, I call them the bulldozer people. And so are the backhoe people. And they're already figuring out how they can abscond with all of this money and use it for drainage projects. And I'm like, well, if you don't fix the buildings, that new drainage project, what are we doing? You're backwards. You got to fix the buildings first, and then you've got plenty of revenues and plenty of reason with all those houses needing that infrastructure to do that. So that's our deal with the revolving loan program. It's really exciting. It's revolutionary. And we think that there's going to be private investment from the banks into this, but they aren't going to loan for drainage projects. They're only going to loan money for assets because they write the mortgages. Right. on these buildings. I guess Makes the question sense, is, right? is it going to start with sort of. RL or SRL, or is it just going to be anybody who's in the special flood hazard area? Um, I think it has to follow the hazard mitigation plan. Okay. So it's going to be your most responsible property owners, as I call it, the ones with insurance. Uh, and and those, will, those will go first, I would think, uh, because their insurance is the most ugly looking and quickest, especially with the SRLs. And I know you got a lot of that inventory up in that, you know, Massachusetts coastline, all the way from the Cape to south of Boston and Quincy, and then up again above Boston uh, on that shoreline. So um, we think it's a tremendous job creator, uh, good for the economy. Um, materials are purchased locally. Your concrete is delivered from the batch plant. Your foundation companies locally do the foundations. Uh, masons do the brick on the columns so they look nice. You know, we, we don't use the wood poles down here. We like it to where it looks like yeah, a- they're, they're getting away from that up here. They're, I mean, but the older homes all had originally started with wood. It's, right. it's a mix, you know. Well, and when you retrofit, you're bringing in a new flood compliant foundation. And so that's the time to do the, the piles underneath for deep scour and the big footings and then use that new fiberglass rebar that Owens Corning's making so you don't have any rotting rebar in your foundation and uh, unknown to you. And, uh, and then, um, you know, but it, uh, financing these projects puts the responsibility to pay for it with the property owners who own that property, but it also saves those revenues that are so vital for our communities to function. I think that that is just such a um, critical element of all of this, which is not only do we have the inventory that we need to elevate, but we also need the funding mechanism. And I think, you know, Rod, one of the things that you've been really um, uh, important in, in, not only in uh, doing or, or advocating for the, the elevation of homes, but the funding of them, but also you mentioned earlier this idea of education. And one of the things Tim and I run into constantly are local communities, you know, communities across the country that we interact with that basically say, you know, would rather not take the federal funding and the burden that it brings to a community than try to work with the federal government to get those funds. 
Um, so when it comes to education, um, what are you seeing and what are you doing in terms of trying to get communities on board with understanding home elevations, the process around that? Um, you know, is it something where communities that you're seeing are getting better about understanding the changes that need to happen? I mean, I, I think when you work with communities, you're probably seeing that you go in there with a base level understand. They 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 have a base level understanding, but by the time you're done with them, they're like, "Wow, this is something that we really need to understand." So, talk to us a little bit about that aspect of it, which is just bringing the general knowledge of our communities up to the level where they get what's going on. Sure, uh, uh, great question, Joe, and great thought. Um, so that's one of the things that I got involved with after my uh, days down here in uh, heavy elevation is that the property owners have no idea what's going on. They, and, and let me tell you, they don't wanna know their risk. I'm sorry, everybody's gotta have these programs with know your risk, know your risk, but average Joe homeowner is concentrating on getting his kids to school, getting to work, going to the football game on Friday night and risk scares them to death. And they don't want to know their risk. And that's one of the big problems is we spend all this money doing risk and nobody's using it because they're still buying homes that are old <laughs> now next. And oh my God, it flooded. Whereas property owners are intelligent. They will educate themselves about certain aspects of you know, lawn care and roofing and protecting their buildings. And when they understand that the flood insurance is going up on that old building, and there is a point at which the tipping will happen and the values will adjust because of that uh, higher insurance rate. Um, you know, I call it the coastal bubble, you know, the different areas are adjusting at different rates. And uh, Florida is just out of control. <laughs> you know, when it goes, it's probably going to go 30% instead of just 5 or 10%. Um, and so um, I think that teaching them about, uh, you know, this whole steps to elevation that I did for the International Association of Structural Movers. I think I shared that flyer with you. Um, there's communities that are just handing out that flyer now that teach homeowners. They have all the pictographs about why it's so good to do all the way down to, did you know that every thousand square feet of your wood frame house is 200 trees? Why do you want to tear it down and throw it in the dump so your kids can inherit that stuff? Just adapt the building and keep moving. Um, and it's a lot cheaper to adapt a building than build something new at the cost of $400 a square foot. <laughs> We're talking $150, $180 a square foot. So, um, uh, you know, educating the property owners is critical. We, we do have that steps to elevation flyer, the trifold flyer that uh, the Association of Structural Movers put out. That is CRS 330 qualified for public education outreach. Uh, I know Miami-Dade is putting it out to everybody in the county. Corps of Engineers said they got 9,000 to elevate down in Miami-Dade. Where do we start? Um, Which road do we start on? Yeah. Um, and so um, that, that helps communicate, educate, uh, and then the property owners start coming back with, well, how much will mine cost? And what's that look like? And that's where these assessments, which is the what's next, after vulnerability is, well, Miami Beach just put out a RFP for assessments of their, they have 9,400 pre-firm buildings out of an inventory of 15,000. That's kind of scary going wow. forward at four foot above sea level. Mm -hmm. So, um, so they're, they're, they want basically budget estimates and the projects selected 
for these buildings so they can start pumping out financing and grants to them uh, for the multiple flooded buildings plus the high risk ones that don't have those designations. And so um, the assessment is what's next. Uh, defining the project, budgeting the project, pre-construction plans. You don't wanna hire the engineers and architects until you get to the financing stage where you can afford those skills uh, at 100 plus $200 an hour. So um, uh, we're developing an app right now that'll work on your laptop or your uh, cell phone that will actually give you a ballpark estimate based on our industry's experience of 100 and some thousand buildings elevated in 20, 30 years uh, of what that elevation project would cost. V zone is more expensive than A zone, coastal A, coastal V. Um, you know, the, uh, the basement has to be filled in. That's more expensive than the, just on the crawl space. We have a lot of concrete block buildings uh, across the nation that came in right after World War II and the lumber shortage. And so, and during World War II, but uh, not as much, just mostly after half of Florida's buildings or more are concrete block. And we can lift those. You know, remember this is the industry that moved the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse in the 90s, 500 foot tall solid brick silo lighthouse weighed 5,000 tons. We can lift your little 100 ton building and put it on a new foundation. So um, that's the next is the assessments, getting to know what this is gonna cost you. The other thing that's really important in these communities that you're talking about, that oh, the government program is, is too much to deal with, um, they really have no idea about the size of the elephant in the back of the room and they need to inventory these buildings. They need to figure out what those property values are. They need to figure out what those property revenues are because that's what's all at risk. And funding for their schools, funding for everything is at risk as we go forward into this kind of wild and crazy next era, which is the climate change era uh, with these crazy storms. And um, don't wait until that thing hits you. Get this knowledge and information together. Now that we got all the uh, assessor information on GIS, it's a slam dunk. All you got to do is draw the line in the boundary where your flood zone is, take all that inventory, figure out an aggregate value of the values and how much revenue is coming off of those buildings. The closer they are to the water, the more revenue is coming off of those buildings. For our Joe community. and I looked at some of the coastal towns in Massachusetts and we were like almost 40% of the tax base in some towns, and if not higher. You know, is is the revenue that these towns are are taken from these these hazard areas? So, you know. and and we haven't put that together yet. And guys like you are starting to lead the way and and help these communities understand. Our industry is here to support you. Our industry is here. You know, we're the we're the manufacturers of all these barriers. We're the manufacturer of flood vents. We're the distribution arms. We're the engineers and architects that put the projects together for construction plans. Um, you know, we've you name them and they're almost members now, which has taken a year and a half of herding cats because you can probably imagine back in 1900 when they sat Ford and Chevy down and said, oh, you got to have a nonprofit North American automobile manufacturers. And they, they were like, nah, next year there's no Ford. We're going to take them off the map. We're going to sell only Chevys. And we know how that ended up. And now there's a North American Automobile Manufacturers Association. We're the same thing. Um, we're partnering with the structural movers because they've been around for 40 years almost now. Um, we didn't want to see a good, fine organization of all these very highly specialized contractors meld into another organization. We think there's more power in multiple groups. Uh, a lot of 
a lot of uh, states are, we have companies in a lot of states, so we have a footprint into Congress pretty good and talking about this stuff. And um, we're just very hopeful for the future here now that we're starting to recognize that we've got to do something with these buildings. We're going to have to make the investment, show our kids the way, and then they'll take it from there. So Rod, with New Orleans, did you have a lot of collaboration between communities and parishes? Like, you know, or does it seem like it's more with the frequency of storms, I guess, you know, up here, we don't see a lot of collaboration between towns and joint efforts. You know, I just wondering if, if has the storms kind of changed that in your, your eye down there? Is it still kind of individual communities? Um, it's, it's the nightmare that I call the New Jersey shoreline where every 10 blocks, there was another little borough or community and government. Right. Um, we said, get together, make, make your, make your requirements for the construction plans. Cause I may be elevating one this morning here and 10 blocks down, I'm elevating another one this afternoon. They got a whole different set of requirements for plans and it's ridiculous. And, and it all comes out of that Friday night football competition growing up. It, it's just the town against town and it's friendly, but it evolved into codes and standards that they do everything differently. And we're just saying for this process, which is the same, whether it's in one town or next town, it's all the same process. We should have the same process for plans development so that these contractors, once this starts rolling, um, we also have a training program in our industry now that's been developed with HUD funding for general contractors because you don't want to get a bunch of financing on the ground and then not have enough contractors that know what they're doing. And you certainly don't want contractors going out trying to buy a machine and learn how to elevate a house you know, you want these elevation companies to grow holistically because that's a lot of risk and a lot of mass. And we've had accidents before with inexperienced people getting into the business. You want insurance requirements. There's certain insurance requirements. So, so we have this new thing in the industry called the Home Raising Academy, um, which basically helps. Uh, it's eight hours of class. You get eight, eight CFMs for it, <laughs> half of your two-year requirement. Um, and we've been taking city staff through it too as well. So they understand the steps mm. to the projects and that you don't do them as municipal projects. You do them as contracted projects with the homeowners, but the community holds the money because when you give money to property owners, there's been examples we've learned of not to do that. So, uh, and then you've got your, you tie them to the code inspection. So you've got your, your uh, pre-foundation pour inspection that's the first one and there's a payment for the elevation of the building. And then after the foundation is done and you've set the building back on its new foundation, you make another payment because you wanna get that foundation paid for. And then at the end of the project, you get your final payment and that's your profit margin and, and stuff. And, and so working with the local banks and the local governments to learn about how these programs, uh, how these projects are put together, which are you know, every one of them is pretty similar. Every house is different, but uh, every one of them is, goes through the same steps. And so we'd love to bring some of that education up there into your Northeast area. We can do it on Zoom now. It's all in the can and virtual. And uh, we'd love to uh, see if you all could get a grant maybe up there and, and spread it to some of your coastal communities to get ready for this program. No, that's... That's great. I think that, you know, when we started um, a little earlier, we mentioned education. I don't think there could be a better form of education than taking the local officials through that type of 
um, class. And, and with that, Rod, believe it or not, this happens to every guest, we are getting right near the end of our time. Um, and it feels like, and, and actually we did, when you came up here, as I mentioned earlier, over the summer, um, we spent a whole day um, driving around, talking about these issues, um, specifically how they can affect our locality here. And for some of our more national listeners, you know, in, in our communities in, in New England, we have a very high, you know, as I mentioned earlier, very high number of these buildings that Rod's been talking about that need to be elevated, need to be mitigated. Um, so as we get towards the end here, Rod, I want to leave our, our guests with, with asking you what, if you could pick one thing that would drive the future of home mitigation and elevation, what would that be? What would that one thing that could happen here in the future, whether it's more funding or more home elevation projects that are approved by FEMA or whatever it might be, what would be the one thing you'd like to see in the future that would drive this, this industry forward? Um, I think it, it all relies on public education because the, the public are the property owners and they're the voters. And when they speak, government needs to respond and they will respond. Right now, we have a, an abundance of um, influence from uh, engineering companies and drainage companies, contractors uh, that have a lot of influence locally with politics. We need the property owners to stand up and say, we need this done. I need my property fixed. I'm not asking for free money. I just need it done. And we need to apply for this money. We need to get the Storm Act, uh, hazard mitigation grant funds, and, and we can do the drainage after we do the buildings. Unless the sewer system has failed, you know, then you gotta, I saw that one area where you had to, had to redo all that sewer line. Yeah. There. But, uh, but, but basically let's do the, let's do, let's do all that road raising and, and drainage improvements after we get all the buildings fixed so that we've got all the revenues we want into the future. And, um, and uh, I think that's the key is the education is really a key element. And our industry really wants to support uh, your efforts up there in the Coastal Coalition. We think it's a, a awesome program that could be duplicated in other parts of the country. We just don't have more Joe Rossi's and, and Williams right now, but <laughs> you all just keep going. And our industry yeah. is there to support you. And if you need us for anything, please reach out. And uh, if you wanna write a grant or something and need our industry to sign on to the grant, for education, let's do that. Whatever, whatever, wherever we can help as an industry and create jobs and protect property, that's our that's our goal. Wow. Well, this has been such a great uh, you know time we've had here with with Rod. Really, a uh, Rod Scott leader, um, the number one guy in my book when it comes to advocacy, education, and um, actually um, reaching out on doing home elevations um, in the flood mitigation industry. So thank you, Rod, for, for being on. And uh, Tim, another great podcast. And we'll be back in another couple months with a uh, another great guest. And thank you all for listening and stay tuned. Thank you, Rod. Thank you all.